basically our bodies do have the physical capacity to heal, you know, amazingly, right? You cut yourself, you can watch that healing happening. We have that innately in our bodies. But in our psyches, we have the ability to heal. And a huge part of that is through creativity and imagination. That is like a the immune system of the psyche, you know. It's what can help us through a- any traumas, any terrible things that have happened is that we can find our way to healing through creativity and music and dance and art. That's Marianne Perre, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wachlick, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down in conversation with people to hear the stories that brought them to this beautiful part of the world we live in, and also get to hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Having grown up in a suburb of Montreal with eight siblings, Marianne found herself as a young adult moving out to Berkeley, California in the late 60s. She will explain how some of those experiences she had there shaped her as an individual, and how she then transitioned into being a subsistence farmer for six and a half years. Following that, she then had a 35-year career working with children in a therapeutic role. Marianne will also speak about how her passion for the environment led her to creating films, and what her on-the-ground experience was like at Woodstock. All that, and honestly, so much more in a really stupendous interview that I know you're going to enjoy. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you are a returning listener, hey, welcome back. If you're a sporadic listener and wind up coming across this through Facebook or other means from time to time, I've got numerous ways now for you to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. So in the show notes, you're going to find that there is a Twitter feed I do, and that's at Stories Brought. I'm also on YouTube now, and the page name is The Stories That Brought You Here. And you can also join the Facebook page, which is The Stories That Brought You Here. There are many different ways to listen to this podcast through Spotify, Apple Podcasts as well, too. And I hope you enjoy what I do because I enjoy people tuning in to listen to these. So there you go. That's it for the intro. And almost without further ado, because we got a little bit of music and then my interview with Marianne Perry. Marianne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me here this morning. I'm delighted. Delighted? Yeah, I am. It's Friday morning. It's just after nine o'clock in the morning. We're doing this first thing. Yeah. Okay. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Actually, how was your day so far? What did you get up to before you got up? Ah, well, I'm because I'm coming here and then going to the ferry, I had to shut down my cabin, which involves, you know, uh, it's off the grid and uh, I have to make sure the solar is okay and I have to get the compost out and... uh, I have to make sure there's wood for the next time we come, and then I have to pack the car. So, yeah, it was a busy morning. Yeah. <clears throat> now I'm just sitting here and having tea with you. Okay, and that does sound like a busy morning. That's probably more than most people have to do before they leave their house. You're just going to be going away for a couple of days? Yeah, going in to see the grandchildren in Victoria. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to talk about your house in a little bit here because uh, I really want to hear what you have to say about it because it's a beautiful, unique home. But this is probably going to be incorporated into the first question, which we're going to ask, and that's what brought you to Pender Island? Yes, what brought me to Pender Island? Uh, It's beauty, I guess, is ultimately. But um, 
two things really brought me to Pender. One was that I had previously lived rurally um, in my life, and I had to leave that home. It was a farm. And <clears throat> ever since, I knew that I wanted to live rurally again. I wanted to grow my own food. I wanted to be in a community that was a, an organic community in, in terms of everyone has to share because they're in one spot together. And yeah, so it was definitely uh, a plan of mine. And then my brother Peter and my sister-in-law Lisa had come to Roseland actually because they were interested in living rurally. And they just said to all our whole family, you know, you got to come to Roseland and see Roseland and stay on Roseland. And in those days, I think it was $10 a person to stay in in these little shacks, really, cabins in Roseland. And there were about six or seven of them, I think. So I think we we ended up with four of them because uh, we had a lot of family members. And we stayed there. And uh, wow, I looked around and I thought, this is the most gorgeous place in the world. Yeah, And then Peter and Lisa actually got a place here. So that was more impetus to uh, to try and make this my home. Okay. It, took it took a while to do it from the time I first came here, yeah. So what year did you visit Roseland in? That would have been 1980 or 81, the first time I came here. Okay. And I purchased land with friends in 1990. Yeah, so it took, it took me nine years. There was a matter of money involved, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Always is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Roseland, I can remember Kelly Irving in the first interview I did talking about Roseland a bit and describing what it was like there, but it sounded kind of magical in terms of what was available for camping and uh, cabining options. Yeah, it totally was. And it was very, you know, very, like the cabins had decorations that had been um, created <clears throat> from, you know, um, sh shells and rocks and everything by people who had stayed in the same cabins year after year. So there was all this interior decor from nature, and each cabin was a little bit different in that way, you know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was gorgeous. So you bought some property in 1990 with some friends yep. on Pender, and uh, what part of the island is that on? So it's the south end of North Pender, and uh, I had actually been looking for a little place by myself, and really my fantasy was that I, I wanted to um, just be by the water and be able to throw my kayak in the water anytime I wanted. And I wanted to be able to collect driftwood and build bonfires and dance around them in the dark. It's very practical fantasy, don't you think? <laughs> that was what I was looking for, just a little tiny piece of land by myself by the water. And then at the same time, friends were looking for a piece of land. And um, they said, you got to come and see this piece of land. We couldn't possibly buy it ourselves. Uh, but maybe we could get it together. And I was thinking, no, I've done so many communal things in my life. I want to do something separate. Um, so anyway, I said, sure. So we took the ferry over in the morning from Vancouver. Uh, David Duke was the realtor. He was from Salt Spring Island. We brought a big picnic with us. He brought two bottles of wine, chilled white wine. <laughs> and we went up to the Oak Bluffs and looked around and sat on the ridge. And it was just you know one of those days where the sky changes every millisecond. And we sat there and ate the picnic, drank two bottles of wine in the middle of the day, and watched the sky. And I said to myself, well, this is fabulous, but I'm never going to be able to... Well, I tried, actually. I, I, the first thing I did was go down to the water to see, okay, could I build a cabin down here? <laughs> well, you know, 
It's very steep there. It's an acre and three quarters to get from the high ridge of Oak Bluff down to the water. Once you get down there, it's a 20, 20 foot drop just on that property anyway. So I thought, well, scratch that. So actually, I said to my friends, no, I don't think I can do that because um, it doesn't fit my fantasy. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, that I think we had a week to decide that or something. And then um, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could... Maybe I could adapt my fantasy because what, what the property would give us was actually living in 50 acres because those, those lots are all 10 acres, but there were two acres on each side of this lot that were uh, unoccupied. So it would give us the, the ability to live in 50 acres of wilderness with an ocean wow. right in front of us. And I thought, well, you know, that's, Maybe that's equally as good a fantasy or possibly better, you know. And the other thing was that I see I'm the kind of person I wanted to be right in the water, you know, like I would have swum in October or something. So for me to buy that property was accessing a different part of my personality, really, not the hands-on right in there, but rather the sit and observe because, you know, Oak Bluffs is a place to just sit and and be in nature and observe the sky and the ocean, which wasn't really my style at that time. I was go get, go get, go getter. So yeah, we made the decision. The three of us bought it together and slowly but surely it has become more and more and more and more my home. That's really interesting. So you're saying that the the location of the property being up on a bluff versus down by the water possibly changed you as a person, changed your personality a little bit? Yeah, well, it, it made me have to access a different part of my personality. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, getting driftwood and building a bonfire and dancing around it in the middle of the night, you know, maybe <laughs> that's a 20s fantasy. <laughs> Sitting and observing nature is more um, maybe a 40s fantasy. <laughs> so maybe my fantasy started when I was in my 20s. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, well, we're definitely going to get back to that because I think your house is something quite amazing that I want people to hear about. But we're going to uh, we're going to go back into the past here because you mentioned your 20s, but we're going to go even further back. And you mentioned that you grew up in a rural uh, situation. And, uh, no, uh, actually, yeah, most people think I grew up on a farm, but I didn't actually, Chris. I, I grew up in a suburb of Montreal. I went to the farm. I, I bought a farm with friends again and brother and brother. When I was in my in my 20s, yeah. But no, I grew up in um, just outside of Montreal, uh, French-Canadian, Irish-Australian combination family, uh, nine kids, though, a Catholic family. And, um, you know, my fa father came from nine kids. My mom came from seven kids. So we grew up with huge extended family. And and we were very lucky to have my grandparents had had bought a property in the Laurentians in a place called Valmarin on a lake. And uh, so in the summer times, we would be there with loads of cousins. So I grew up um, with kids and, and, and kids my age and younger kids and older kids around all the time in the summer times. Yeah, it was a very formative part of my life. Yeah. Well, holy smokes, eight brothers and sisters. Mm. Actually, seven brothers, one sister. Thank you to my sister. <laughs> and and where do you fit in the line there? Um, well, Peter, who lives also on Pender, is the oldest boy. And then I'm next, so I'm the oldest girl. And, you know, when you have nine kids, 
you you really end up with two oldests, right? You know, so I don't know. Peter might disagree with me, but I think I was an oldest too. My sister came next, which was really good planning on my parents' part, because then there were six boys after that, and uh, and so at least there were two girls close in age, and also very much helpers to my mother. Yeah, that's a really unique experience. Uh, obviously, people growing up today, there's not too many families with uh, that many kids. As you know, my wife's family is almost as big. There was eight kids in there. Yeah. But uh, what was that experience like growing up in such a, a large family with that many siblings around? <laughs> well, it was normal, right, for us. I mean, I remember looking at families in church, right, um, who had one or two or three kids. And I would think, oh, how sad for them, you know. Because it was seemed to me something missing, you know. Ultimately, I would say it it has been hugely formative to grow up in a family that size. And for me, I'm very happy to say it was like mostly totally positive. You know, the thing is, our parents weren't that available to us. They were, you know, they were getting by great, just doing the basics of what they had to do. My father was a doctor, uh, and he was also involved in the school board, and uh, he was not. He was not around that much. My mother had, you know, sometimes three kids in diapers at the same time. You know, try and picture that. Yeah. Um, so we had each other. We turned to each other. And, you know, most of my siblings are, are my best friends. That's just the way it turned out. I know, I know in, an, in another family, probably, you know, when there's more um, struggles, that may not be the case. You might hate your siblings, you know, but we had all our basic needs taken care of and we looked to each other really for attachment. And uh, and we were really lucky, yeah. That we are pretty, we're a pretty compatible bunch. Of course, it's always exceptions, right? But yeah, uh, so quite formative. And the thing is that you know, how do you get attention in a family like that? Well, you gotta, you know, you gotta figure out. I'm sure no kid does this consciously, but you gotta figure out how you're gonna be unique in a family. So I tried really hard to be smart, and I got high grades. But I worked, worked, worked. I thought I, I didn't think of myself as smart. I just thought that I was working the hardest. And my teacher once sent a note home to my parents to say, could you please limit Marianne to two and a half hours of homework? She's doing more than that, I can tell from her work. Wow. <laughs> the opposite complaint you usually get from teachers. Yeah. And the other thing I did to get attention or get recognition was uh, be a good older sister. Well, there wasn't that much option anyway, but I took care of my brothers. So did my sister. We took really good care of them. You know, we, we played with them. We'd come home from a school. We'd change out of our school clothes and then we'd play with the kids. Yeah. And when you say the experience was really formative and all the things that you mentioned about being close and having those connections and being friends with your, your siblings and all that, is there anything else that stands out as a, a formative part of that experience for you? Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the summers in the country, you know, we, uh, we had a, a big house where we had cousins living there too. Um, we had a lake, uh, we could walk barefoot. There were woods around us. We played and played and played and what good fortune we had, you know, um, to, you know, didn't have a whole lot of limits on us. Our parents didn't, you know, couldn't keep track of us for one thing. That the younger ones were being counted to make sure nobody was drowning, but the rest <laughs> of us, you know, could do what we wanted. And uh, I mean, the boys got into terrible things like catching bullfrogs and dissecting them and things like that. But we girls, we'd just like play fantasy games and uh, and swim and and yeah. So 
that was really very, very fortunate. And, and a little bit like, you know, kids who grow up on Pender, you know, who have that amount of freedom. It was, it was only the summers, but, but also it was being a part of a large family, you know, in terms of identity, the extended family, which was the Paré family, so my dad's side of the family. We also get along pretty darn well. We still have, you know, yearly reunions. COVID has sort of messed that up a bit, but we're, we're heading to our 100th anniversary family reunion, which always happens on Labor Day weekend, um, 100th anniversary of actually being on that piece of land where my grandparents purchased. And there's probably five generations now who have played on that sand in that and, and swum in that water since my grandparents um, first purchased it. Yeah. That's amazing. Seriously. So that's coming up next year, 2023? Then. Well, it was supposed to be the first summer of COVID or the first uh, Labor Day weekend of COVID was supposed to be the 100th. So we've postponed, postponed, postponed. I, I'm hoping it'll be uh, it'll be this coming at uh, 2023. But well, people will come from everywhere to, and it's usually about 150 people. Wow, really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, and it's, and it's organized around tennis. <laughs> so... So at some point, my 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 parents and my uncles uncles and aunts recognized, shit, all our kids are leaving home. They're going off and you know having adventures, and they they wanted to, you know, make sure we came back home. So they actually built. Uh, there are two tennis courts among all the homes that are in that in that area that are my aunts and uncles and my parents. So, um, so then it was like, well. The Paris do have a competitive streak. There's no doubt about that. So then it was tennis, and then it was these tennis weekends, which is the Labor Day weekend, which they call the the Paris match, which is a sort of a takeoff on the, I think it's a Le Paris match is a, a magazine in France. Yeah. Anyhow, so now the reunion is organized around um, a, a tennis weekend, but there's lots of other things going on for kids and uh, art and. Yeah, and um, and feasts and everything. Yeah. Sounds awesome. When my wife's family comes to visit, we have a, a badminton net set up in the yard, so we have a badminton competition, and it just makes for way more fun yeah. having some competition between each other. I can I can resonate with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Fun. Um, okay. Well, so as you were becoming a teenager and going into your twenties, how were you evolving as a person during those years? Aha, uh -huh. well, that was a dramatic part of my life because I think, you know, I I was a good girl. Um, I, uh, you know, how do you get seen in a family of nine? Well, be good. You know, you could be really bad too, you know. <laughs> but uh, I chose the good route. So I was a very helpful mother's help helper and I was a good student and everything. And then, you know, when I got to university, having been raised Catholic, I just started questioning, wow, you know, really? I mean, these things are mortal sins. I mean, eating meat on Friday, you know, was a mortal sin. You could only eat fish on Friday. And a mortal sin, if you die after you eat meat on Friday, you'd go to hell forever and ever. And that just didn't add up for me anymore. So I started questioning some of the things that I had learned, you know, since catechism. Catechism, and I have to say it, catechism. 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 That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I've almost forgotten how to say catechism. <laughs> well, it was like grade one. You start catechism. So um, I started realizing I actually didn't agree with some of these things, which were supposed to be, you know, straight from God, which was 
huge. So that caused somewhat of a revolution in my own interior life, which because I was such a good girl, I felt I should actually talk with my parents about this, right? So like, for example, premarital sex being a mortal sin? Um, well, there was just no question in my parents' mind that was a mortal sin. So when I raised that in my family, it was like, you know, Mount Etna going off, actually. <laughs> yeah, and many dramatic things happened as a result of that. And I ended up eventually um, becoming pregnant and um, having a shotgun marriage, essentially, in those days it would have called that. It was just really on the cusp of all of that changing, too, really, because that would have been 1966, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, so the sexual revolution really hit before the religious revolution in my, in my world, you know? Yeah, so um, I got catapulted from being, you know, a, a fairly sheltered good girl uh, into being, you know, like a rebellious um, outlaw. You know, by the time I was 20, I was actually in Berkeley, California, uh, with a, a newborn, um, which was actually my second pregnancy. I had a the first pregnancy. Uh, um, she was born prematurely and died within an hour of birth. And then being my mother's daughter, I got pregnant immediately. And anyhow, we ended up in Berkeley, California. And my, ch my son was born the year of the flower child, 1967. So you know, from from a little backwater suburb outside of Montreal in a very protected uh, family, I was catapulted into adult life. Yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, I just want to say I'm sorry about the loss of your mm -hmm. first child. Thank so, you, Chris. Seriously, that's mm -hmm. uh, those things are tragedies. And second of all, how did you make it to Berkeley? What what happened to draw you to that place? And how did you wind up uh, eventually going there? Mm. Well, yeah, uh, good fortune, I would say, <laughs> when I look back on it. So my, uh, my boyfriend, who then became my husband, um, had a Woodrow Wilson scholarship to study, get a master's anywhere in Canada or the United States. And we looked around and we said, well, where are things happening? Berkeley, California. And so that's where we went with no money in our pockets, just barely enough money from the, um, from the scholarship to get by. And, um, yeah, we arrived there in 66 and we were there for two years. And, uh, you know, the be-ins were happening and the free speech movement was happening. And we lived right close to the university and, you know, was always stuff going down, and Vietnam War was happening, and uh, we were marching. Once we had a child, you know, the guideline was an, one parent always stayed home when you went to a march because you could get arrested, and you wanted to make sure somebody was there for your kids, you know. So it was a very tumultuous time, uh, which it was formative also. Um I realized that I have actually taken um, the road less traveled fairly often in my life since then. <laughs> well, I guess I put myself on that path, didn't I, by challenging the Catholic Church? Yeah, so uh, I, I have taken the road less traveled, and I think Berkeley was a great jumping off uh, spot for that. Yeah. 
So what was that scene like in those days around Berkeley? Because I would imagine not everybody was activated on the social justice front, or am I incorrect in that assumption? Or was it very, the majority of people were were wanting to have their voice heard and create some change? What do you remember from those times? Yeah, well, because we were in Berkeley, we were seeing social change, you know, just rampant all around us. But of course, in other parts of California and other parts of Canada and the United States, it was still the early 60s, right? You know, you know, I have a, a cousin, um, a beloved cousin, who's just a year and a half older than me. She's really more like my parents' generation, you know? So th- it, there was a, a real cataclysm that happened there that, that really, what percentage of the population, hard to know. But, you know, even compared to today there was just more happening societally i think and more in terms of questioning and challenging and uproar you know now we need that even more than we did then you know then it was you know there were things going wrong for sure but now there are so many things going wrong but really the 60s was uh was a time of enormous change social change that really was a snowball going downhill in a lot of ways. And yeah, I would say it was, it changed quite a few people's lives. Whether they stayed on that path, I mean, you know, some people say I used to be a hippie. Well, mm-hmm. I would never say that. I am a hippie. You know, <laughs> you stuck <laughs> How with do it. You used to be a hippie. You know, the values of that time are still very much part of who I am. What particular issues during that time were you really activated with? Well, you know, Having grown up in Montreal, I was, you know, I was among black people for the first time in my life. It was very white Montreal when I grew up. And, you know, in in Quebec, there were a lot of social issues with francophones and anglophones, but there wasn't a lot happening yet at that time about the injustices in the province of Quebec. Interestingly, it was easier in a way to see the injustices, the racial injustices in California that was in my own hometown. (laughs) You know, that came later. Uh, but wow, yeah, I think stepping into another culture uh, made it um, maybe more possible for me to ha- have my eyes open about the injustices. And being a, a woman, um, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old at that point, beginning to recognize, wow, and those injustices actually come down to what is it like for me to be female in a, in a patriarchy? So the the beginnings of that thinking um, certainly were there. And then there was the war in Vietnam, which was so obviously really a terrible mistake and, and a horrifying, horrifying experience for the people of Vietnam. And, and, and we had so much information about it, you know? And I, I tend to be sometimes a kind of black and white thinker. It's like, wow, if the Vietnam War is wrong, then we have to be actively involved saying that. And and the thing is that it was easy to do that in Berkeley because, you know, you could be on a march every day. You could be, you know, in an office, you know, mailing out, you know, helping to mail out stuff. And you could be supporting the movement uh, anywhere you looked. So, and it was hard to do that, too, because I had a baby and, and I had to make some money because, uh, you know, my husband was uh, in university. So I did work caring for children at the same time as caring for my own child. And I worked in office overload and, and I marched and, and ultimately, 
you know, when my husband had his degree and we could then choose where we would go next, we chose to came back, come back to Canada because we just felt so, you know, what the United States was doing was so wrong. And for myself, anyway, if I had stayed, I would have had to become quite socially active um, against the war at that time. And it was very hard to do that and be a, a young mom and also to have a job. So we retreated to Canada, but with a lot of experience from those two years. Yeah. Okay. And so when you came back to Canada, where did you choose to live and what did your life look like then? We we came back to Montreal, but I'll just add actually, Chris, because I think this is another part of it. The music, the music in in Berkeley, California, in San Francisco, the music of the 60s was just uh, so thrilling and, you know, turned me on to the whole, you know, world of creativity and the world of music in a way that I, I just hadn't. And, you know, I mean, I ended up going to Woodstock, uh, you know, uh, so live music, music in the parks, you know, festivals um, was another thing that came from those those years in California. So, yeah, we came we came back to to uh, Montreal. Well, hold on, hold on. Let, let's touch on the music for a second okay. here because this is curious. <laughs> so you talk about music in the park and uh, and music being everywhere. And actually, I want to hear a little bit about Woodstock too. You know, when you say that it was everywhere, was were you going out to um, to clubs a lot to watch it? Was You said there was outdoor concerts going on. Was it just spilling out of bars, the music? was Well, was it yeah, the, it was everywhere. Went to the Fillmore a couple of times. But the thing is, you know, if, you have a baby, you can't afford babysitting, you know. But uh, there were beans. That was the thing. The beans were in like Golden Gate Park, you know, you know, thousands of people. And Allen Ginsberg was there, and Janis Joplin, and Grace Slick, and you know, just Creedence Clearwater. I mean, and and you didn't, you know, you didn't pay. You know, I mean, I don't remember paying to go to those beans. No, you didn't pay. You know, they were part of the peace movement. Really, is what they were. And it was just amazing. I mean, it, there was marijuana, there was LSD. Because I was a young mom, I wasn't doing that stuff. But there was a dark side to it, too. I mean, Charles Manson was around in Berkeley, California when I was there. I remember one day being in a laundromat and um, some guy coming up to me and saying, you know, hey, a bunch of us are going out to the valley. You know, we're going to a farm and having a party. You know, you want to come along? It's like, yeah, of course I did, you know, but I was washing, I was doing the diapers, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, afterwards I thought, shit, that could have been one of Charlie Manson's guys, you know, that was happening. So there's the dark side right there. But also, you know, at the Beans, what I was aware of is that, there, you know, a lot of young people with young kids and some of those kids were not being taken care of properly because the parents were just too stoned and too high on the music and... And and we're too young to be sensible about how do you how what children need. So I really saw that. And being you know a caregiver caregiver to young children, it it shook me. It did disturb me. So you know as things went down in in California after we left, um, yeah, I had seen the beginnings of that. And and that's the you know, the downside of the beauty of uh, of the '60s for sure. Hmm. Yeah. So interesting because, you know, my impression of those times are through archival footage or through movies that represent it. And it's usually with a pretty glossy sheen to it, right? Yeah. So what you just described there about uh, people maybe not doing the best job that they could as parents uh, because of choices that they make with 
using drugs and maybe not being present as much as they should be, that's that's a good thing to mention. Yeah. Uh, there's there's always an alternative side to these uh, wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Uh, what made you decide to go to Woodstock? Well, because it was there, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so we were back in Montreal. Um, I was... Um, working for the Royal Bank of Canada. My husband had taught for a while, and then he gave up teaching and wanted to do filmmaking. And is it, was it 1970 or 69? Whatever. 69. 69. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So my son was two, and, and it was happening in Woodstock, New York, which was, I don't know, a four-hour drive from where we were. And my parents said they would take my son, Sebastian. So two carloads of us went down, and in our carload, we had the food, and in the other carload, they had the sleeping bags and the tents and everything. Anyway, the, the most thrilling moment for me was like, we're, we're driving down, we're listening to the radio, and we're hearing, whoa, a lot of people showing up, right? And then we're, by the map, we're still a mile outside of Woodstock, the town of Woodstock, and we see that um, there's cars pulling over on the side of the road, and then there's like, major cars and then there's like fields of cars and then you you actually you can't go any further we had to pull over and park and walk through the town of Woodstock to get to the other side of Woodstock to get to the farm where the festival was happening there were half a million people by then you know? and and we you know getting out of cars and seeing people you know with feathers in their hair and you know and all their backpacks and their uh, beads and bare feet and everything it's like whoa we are we are with our people and um and yeah and then we get there and the guy in the other car one of the guys in the other car had um a press pass so we were supposed to meet at the press table where we were going to you know uh, figure out where we we're going to camp and everything like that well, by the time we got to the press table, essentially there was no press table because by then the, the gate was down. They decided, well, we can't control this. So they opened the gates and people were just swarming in. And we, we stayed more or less by this table. There was no press there. The press were all over the place. It was not a, it was not even a ticket table, right? You know, so uh, we took turns going back to the press table waiting for our friends. We never found them. So we didn't have tents. We didn't have sleeping bags. Um, they didn't have food. And <laughs> and it started to rain, of oh, course. Oh, man. And um, actually, we slept underneath the, the so-called press table. And and I don't, I don't remember where they ended up. At least they had tents, you know. But yeah, food was a scarcity, too. And uh, I mean, another memory that stands out for me was... Um, Joan Baez, about two in the morning, because of course the music was all delayed, and you know it. Uh, you know they were flying people in because they couldn't drive the performers in, so it was just like, well, okay, let's see who's here now. Okay, let's put them on the stage. <laughs> so it's about two a.m. and Joan Baez dedicates her next song to David. I can't remember his last name. Who was a, a an activist and uh, her partner at the time who was in in jail, you know. So she's she's sending out this song to him. And we're all, you know, groveling in the mud, in the rain. It was like, oh, he's got a warm bed. He's got three meals a day, you know, dedicated to us. Look at us out here. 
Yeah. And then, and then, you know, then there was, you know, people who were just sliding in the mud, you know, there was a, there was a slope. So it just became like a, a, a sliding slope and people would just take all their clothes off and slide in the mud. It was wild. It was cold too, because of the rain. And then the, the thing is, I never, I never really saw the stage. I could see the stage from a distance, but there was no way I wasn't going to fight through these crowds. They, it was, they were like just jam packed. So it was a phenomenon. It was absolutely phenomenon to be there. And, and and later in life, it was a great way to impress teenagers because I worked with teenagers a lot and they would say, what? You were in Woodstock. I never thought teenagers would be interested, you know, because it was like 20 years later. But anyhow, that was a, you know, a badge of honor that I had that I was at Woodstock. Did you realize at the time that it was this landmark cultural event that you were at or maybe not really? Yeah, we did. We did. It was, it was like, um, suddenly it felt like the whole world was, you know, Berkeley, California in 1967. You know? Suddenly it was like, oh yeah, we're, we are the world, you know, <laughs> which really, I think there's a song, isn't there, from that, that era. But the hopefulness that the core message was, let's live in peace. You know, let's be kind. Uh, let's, let's, let's let go of a lot of the constraints that our society puts on us. Can we do that? You know, that was a beautiful, overriding, you know, hope in the 60s. And and Woodstock felt like that because, um, you know, we took care of each other in the muck and the rain, you know, <laughs> and the music was just uplifting. Um, yeah. And, and it had its dark side too, didn't it? You know, I mean, it, the weather certainly was the dark side. But, you know, nobody, there was no violence there. I think one baby got born. Nobody died. You know, it was amazing. It was an amazing moment in time. Cool. No, that's really, that's really cool. I don't even know if I've ever talked to anybody who's been to Woodstock before. So that's a, that's a first one for me. Thank you for sharing the stories about that. And mm -hmm. I, just one last question about that as well, too, is that, when you and your friends made the decision to go, I guess it was based on the fact that there was this incredible lineup of music and it was a huge festival. Had anything like that happened before or was that kind of a unique event? The, yeah, those kinds of um, festivals were happening. At Ontario, I can't at the moment remember what the name of it is. Ontario started a, a, a yearly festival around that time. And again, you know, I have a 77-year-old memory here, so there's gaps. The music festival where Dylan first went electric had happened on the East Coast, I think in New York State, Upper New York State. And that had happened um, two years previously, I think, maybe even three years previously. And my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, had gone down to that concert and had been there for Dylan coming on stage um, with the band and going electric for the first time and being present for all the booing while he and, and, and our other friend who was with him were just absolutely blown away beyond anything they'd ever imagined to hear poetry with electric music, essentially, you know, because we were all poets in those days too, right? You know, so, um, so yeah, it, it was happening on the East Coast as well as the West Coast. Um, at that time, yeah. Okay. All right, so let's go back up across the border, back up to Canada. So you were living in Quebec at that time after having moved back from Berkeley. And uh, what were you and your young family doing there? You said you were working in a bank. Yeah. In high school, I'd been a 
a bank teller in the summer times. So I, I actually uh, had, to, had to go to work. And by then, my son was four and was in preschool and daycare. And I did one of the most courageous things of my life, actually, because um, I thought, well, if I have to do something dreary like work in a bank, I'll, I'll figure out um, how to make it more cha- challenging for myself and do what I've always wanted to do, which is learn French. Because my last name is Paré. My father um, was bilingual. His family, his his father was francophone, and his mother was from Australia. So they all spoke English at home, but the kids were all raised or, or educated in French and English. So in that family, if they married a francophone, they raised their kids in French. If they married an anglophone, raised in English. So I was raised in English. My mom was an Allison, so that's you know Scottish Irish. And so, we, you know, in, in high school, in grade school, high school, we, we learned French. They taught it the same way they taught Latin, you know, like here, translate English to French, French to English, you know, right, all written. We never heard this being spoken. My French teacher, the one I remember best, was Dutch. So, you know, I probably had a, if we did speak at all, I probably had a French Dutch accent <laughs> in high school. So, I, you know, like it was crazy, you know, I couldn't speak French. So I asked them to place me in a a French branch and uh, a bank branch in French is succursale. Isn't that a great word? Succursale. Succursale francophone. (laughs) So I had to count in French, which I could do, but like, you know, sometimes I was dealing with hundreds and thousands of dollars, you know, and speak to the customers in French. So that's how I got myself to be bilingual. From that experience, uh, then things sort of transitioned, I guess, uh, over time to living in a rural situation on a farm? Yeah. You know, I think, as I look back on it, I think the dream to live rurally started in in Berkeley, that there was a back-to-the-land movement, and Mother Earth News was one of the big publications, and there was the, you know, again, the beginnings of understanding that, wow, you know, we've got a problem with agriculture. We have a problem with the food we eat. There's a lot of chemicals in this. There's a lot of chemicals in the air. There's a lot, you know, so the the health movement and the environmental movements, all, all, all of those movements really were coming alive. And, and, you know, probably some of it was that, you know, the joy I'd had as a child being in nature, but also just being aware how many things didn't fit for me in an urban environment, you know, the amount of traffic and noise, the pollution, the uh, the separateness of people, you know, living their own lives and working, working, work. I remember, yeah, working in a bank and realizing a lot of these young women, they they work all week long just to make enough money, you know, for their makeup and dresses and hairstyles and everything you know, so that they can come back to work. They're not even saving any money, you know. And I was slightly older than them and in a different stage of my life. But I just thought, wow, what a rat race. I don't want to be part of this. So my husband and I started to look at land. And then in that period of time, we actually separated. Uh, my son was five at the time. And we'd we'd been living communally. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, live, I have lived communally 90% of my life, I think, um, because now I live communally on Pender because I, I share land, uh, but, which came naturally to me because I'd lived with, you know, 11 people in my family. So we were living communally, and uh, one of my younger brothers, Anthony, who's five years younger than me, 
um, and his friend Colin, who was somebody I had known since childhood, um, they had gone and uh, lived on a ranch out west and worked as cowboys on a ranch out west in Alberta. And so they knew cattle, they knew horses, they knew fencing, they, they knew, you know, working hard. Um, and they were interested in farming. So um, we started looking for land. And we had this fantasy that we would drive across Canada and look at all the land that was available and choose. Oh my God, when you're young, eh? And we did, we did that. We actually did not all of Canada, but we actually drove across Canada. We went to the Peace River District. I'm telling you, they don't, didn't like hippies up there at that time. <laughs> Anyhow, that's a long story. You'd have to do, we'd have to do another interview because, but I'll, so I'll shorten that part. Anyhow, so we, what we ended up doing was we, we bought a piece of land in Quebec before we even traveled out west and had our, our road trip, but we came back to it because it was really where we were supposed to be. So we bought 67 acres with a house, a barn, a sugar bush with a thousand maple trees, a falling down shed, and it was $8,500 for three people to purchase. <laughs> um, and that was um, 1973. And yeah, we had seven, eight, uh, seven years, yeah, um, six and a half years, yeah, I guess, um, of um, living on the land, subsistence farming. We never expected to make our money that way, but we were our own bosses. We ate like royalty. We learned a lot of skills. We we worked our asses off. You know, we were poor, and we were happy. We had just the most wonderful experience of, you know, learning a lot and being close to the land. It, we, we did it all organically. We, we, we farmed with a horse. So we, we had a workhorse. We did the sugar, a sugar bush was with a horse. We plowed our land and harvested with a horse. We had milk cows. We, uh, we raised pigs. We um, uh, slaughtered and butchered and smoked the hams and bacons. Um, and um, and we got to know our neighbors, and you know, I mean, the farmers around just thought it was a la laughable, you know, these hippies that were coming out to live on the land, and um, they 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 didn't have much respect for us at first, but eventually, I think uh, some of them did because, uh, you know, we we showed that we had grit, and uh, and we made friends with our neighbors, and they helped us certainly. Helped us with butchering. Yeah, that was really important. And questions around sugaring. And um, yeah, and my son, he, he hated taking care of the chickens, but he got good at it <laughs> on cutting kindling. And we had three dogs and two cats, which so he had played with animals all the time. And, um, and you know, I mean, the insulation in the walls was n newspaper. It was like a, you know, a, pretty shambles of a house and we had a wood furnace so you know in the winter each adult took a month at a time to get up at 2 30 in the morning to stoke the furnace to, so so the pipes wouldn't freeze <laughs> um we cooked on a wood stove and we ate our own meat always and i'd say 80 percent 90 percent of our own vegetables um and yeah we really had a terrific time we, we wrote journals at that time and recently uh, my my brother and Colin, who so was the the other the third person who uh, I had separated from my husband and and eventually he and I were partners. So 
the three of us are now, you know, in our 70s, and we, we got together and read our journals aloud. Oh, man, amazing. Oh, God, we laughed till we were sick. And uh, and really, what we what we what we found on those pages is how poor we were, really, <laughs> and uh, and how hard we worked, and what a great time we had. We and we we know that we certainly remember that part. The poor and the hard work we didn't remember as much, but yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful time. So going into experiences like that, we have some preconceived ideas as to what things are going to be like. And usually things never turn out that way in terms of how we envision them. But how did things work out differently from what your vision was of what Mm. you intended to do? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, you know, one thing was that um, because we were so young, we didn't actually have a vision for the rest of our lives, you know, (laughs) you know. We were just doing it. We were doing it. Did I ever think then I'm going to live here the rest of my life? I don't think I asked myself that question. Now, I mean, I know when we left, which was in 1979, I knew that if I had two lives, one of them I would still be on that farm. I would have, or, or on a farm in that. I, I was so in love with that um, community and uh, with the with the land and the part of the world that we were in. Um, but there were a number of factors that made it not possible to stay. So yeah, we couldn't sustain it. A- and I guess, you know, I mean, we we went to be back to the land, which is a little bit different than going to do agriculture for a job or a living, right? We didn't necessarily think we were going to, um, you know, ha- become a farm that had um, an income. But actually, the reality is that if you're going to be a farm that has a, an income, you have to do monoculture and, and you'd have to do like acres and acres of, you know, strawberries or asparagus or, you know, animals or whatever in order to get, um, farm sus- subsidies, which you need if you're going to get up and running. I mean, we, we had just enough money to, and we borrowed from my father, which was amazing. He, he actually did give us a loan and we paid him back by the month for a couple of years and paid it all off. But, you know, uh, the government doesn't want to support what we were doing, you know, which was, you know, mixed uh, farming and, and organic. So some of our friends who had larger pieces of land and more and, and better pieces of um, viable land um, did go on to stay and, and, and be able to have an income. But I don't think we really ever really talked through, you know, how are we going to do this long term? That wasn't what we, we were in the moment. We were in the, in the joy of the learning and the, uh, the adventure. And, um, yeah. So, but what did happen over time was that, let's see, my brother had, did not have a partner and he eventually fell in love, in love with somebody who was in the city. And so he went back to Montreal and Colin, so who was my partner that time was, working on, on his own. By then, I had become the secretary treasurer of the municipality, which was like the best job in the world because I I got to know everybody in the town. I got to speak French to the Francophones, English to the English people. It was just a, a great job. But my partner, Colin, was working alone in the woods. So, you know, we needed to do a lot of work in the woods because we cooked with wood. We heated our house with wood and we needed tons of wood for sugaring. And and he developed a, a problem that was never fully diagnosed. It probably ha- was to do with his thyroid. Anyway, he uh, would get dizzy and feel like he was going to pass out. And when you're working with a chainsaw, you cannot be thinking you're going to pass out. And so that became really problematic. 
And also my son, who adapted really well to rural living, was finishing grade six and he was going to have to go to uh, on a bus to the nearest town that had a secondary school. So it was going to be uh, 25 miles each way on the bus. And yeah, that just didn't seem like the right the right thing for him. And it wasn't the right thing uh, for Colin to keep working in the woods on his own. So we knew we had to make a change. Uh-huh. Uh, and by then, my brother Anthony was had gone. So yeah, we we knew we it was time to move on. I mean, like I, you know, if I was if I was still there, I'd be a pig lady because raising pigs was just the greatest thing. I loved those pigs. Really, what what was it about raising pigs you really loved? Oh, they're so smart. You know, they talk to you. You come in and they're talking, talking, talking to you. You know, and uh, they're very personable pigs. <laughs> and um, and then the, the litters. I mean, we we had pigs that had a particular problem, which is they got high fevers, um, which, of course, we did not know about. They got high fevers when they went into labor. And so they actually tried to attack their baby young. Yeah. Uh, So um, we had to work really closely with them. I I was like the midwife. And, you know, there'd be 13 babies, you know, running around. The mother would be trying to kill them. Uh, So, yeah. So I got to really interact a lot with pigs. And that was... um, that's a, a great part of of that life. Yeah. Okay. Well, six and a half years is a good run to be doing that, and you you hit the eject button on that experience, and then you transition into another phase in your life. And what did that next phase look like? Um, yeah. So, partner comes to British Columbia to do a farrier course. You know, he'd worked a lot with horses. Um, did a farrier course. And um, my brother Peter was out here with his family at that time, so my partner Colin stayed with him. And meanwhile, I was still the secretary treasurer of the municipality, and my son was in school, and um, you know I was committed to make sure he finished school there for the year. So lots of talking back and forth. You know, really complicated part was that um, Sebastian's dad, my son's dad, was in Montreal, and how was that going to work? So. Um, yeah, that was a challenging part of our lives. However, we did end up coming to British Columbia. Um, having Peter here was a great stepping stone for us. My partner Colin and I had been working actually as childcare workers in Montreal before we did farming. So we, we ran group homes. We came to Vancouver first. We ran group homes and immediately, you know, I was thinking, how am I going to get back the land? So that's where Pender comes in. But I had the great good fortune. My career has just unfolded for me, I must say. You know, I, I, I was trained to work with children when I was seven years old in my family. I, I worked as a child care worker in my 20s, um, came to British Columbia, ran group homes. Then I worked at the Maples Adolescent Treatment Center, working with adolescents with a medical model. And then realized, wow, you know, these kids, so much going on, but what's happening with the families? You got to, you know, you got to, help the families if you're going to help the kids. So I did an intensive two-year program with um, Pacific Coast Family Therapy Training Institute. Then I got my master's at UBC in, in family counseling. And I went on to have um, like a 35-year practice uh, working with children and families. And again, as I look back on it, I think, wow, you know, taking the road less traveled because I was trained as a family therapist. And I was also trained to do play therapy with children. 
And I never could choose, you know, would I be a play therapist or a family therapist? Because it seemed to me like, yeah, this all fits together. There's got to be some way to bring the kids into the family therapy and the adults into the play therapy. But, you know, I mean, play therapy is just a terrific way to offer kids a safe place to deal with pains and struggles and trauma that they've had because they're in charge, essentially. And it's using the creative imagination of the child to find a way through to healing. Um, uh, it's just a beautiful way of working. But the thing is, you know, traditionally the parents are outside the room. So my career became an integration of play and family therapy. And um, so I, I was in training, we had to videotape ourselves. So as I started trying to do this integration in my own practice, I, I continued to ask people for the permission to videotape them and not everybody but if some people I would give them you know a lot of people I worked with on a sliding scale so that was more possible to offer them that and 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 ask for videotaping um, but then you know one of the most important cases I ever worked with the the, the father was a doctor and the mother uh, had been a filmmaker and had died violently and he wanted me to videotape what was happening with his child um, and so I, I began to use the videotape um, for teaching. Yeah, I eventually developed a private practice. Well, I worked in a number of uh, settings, government-sponsored settings, and then in private practice. But I, I, I started um, providing supervision. So supervision of people who are working with children and families. So they bring their cases and talk about what's going on and what their struggles are and what their personal issues are and everything. And, you know, we just talk about what's happening here, what are the hypotheses about what's going on, what could be helpful. So um, I've done that. <laughs> I, I have continued to do that. Um, I am retiring, actually, at the end of this month, December 31st. I am going to be supposedly fully retired. I am going to be fully retired from my practice. Um, and I feel incredibly lucky to have found that field of work because it's a through thread through my life, you know. I had kids surrounding me when I was a child, I and I ended up working with children, and and it's been just a, a rich, joyful part of my life. Yeah, so that happened when I came to British Columbia, which made it possible to actually have an income, that made it possible <laughs> to think about looking at land, you know. And that brought me, that brought me to Pender. Well, yeah, let's spend a little bit of time there, though, because it's a 35-year career, and you started off by saying that you did a two-year intensive program, and then you quickly said, I got my master's, which which makes it sound like it, it happened very quickly and easily. But these things are a lot of time and a lot of effort. What made you decide to pursue that? Mm -hmm. uh, what was it at that time that made you think, wow, I really want to dedicate a lot of time to learning and educating myself so then you could do do what exactly? Like at that time, your whole future wasn't laid out for you. There was a lot of unknowns, I guess, right? But what was it that really made you have that drive to continue with school? Hmm. Well, yeah, you know, I thought of myself as a failed academic, actually. Um, I did not think of myself as somebody who would continue in school because if we go back to that earlier part of my life, I was... Uh, uh, 1920, I was in an honors English program in Loyola College in Montreal, which 
had just integrated uh, with women, so it was all men until until I got there. There were seven women the first year I was there. And in retrospect, and I even found that out, that I had a, a reading disability. So here I am in honors English with a reading disability. I couldn't get through the material. I was really struggling. But also I was struggling because the larger issues at that time, you know, well, one of them being, you know, am I really a Catholic at this point in my life? That was huge because my parents were, were like my the whole world around me were, you know, devout Catholics, and they were good Catholics. They were, they were radical Catholics, really. I mean, they fed the poor. They were down on the east end of Montreal, you know, with working with homeless people. They brought children into a, a Hungarian refugee child came into our home when we had like seven kids already. You know, I think they they did religion the right way, but it. It, the rhetoric of it, the the rules and regulations weren't fitting for for me anymore. Yeah, so uh, you know, I I actually never got my BA um, at, at that point in time because I started getting lost in the larger issues of of what is this world about? What is you know what do I really believe? What do I believe? Never mind what Shakespeare believed. I mean, at the time, getting a BA in English it was like every author we read was male, British, and dead. <laughs> I mean, that was what my university experience was. So, I mean, no no surprise that I was like, well, yeah, but I'm a young woman. Uh, I'm young, I'm a woman, and I'm sexual. So, I mean, I got off track for my studies because of all the uh, upheaval in my life. And then, you know, when I got to a point in my career where I did love running group homes, I loved working with kids in treatment centers, but um, I needed to go further. I wanted to go further, and I knew I needed to get a paper to do that. I needed my um, my university degree, but I, I thought of myself as a failed academic, actually. And in fact, it wasn't easy to get into UBC. I, you know, I got turned down. I was on, you know, on a wait list. Uh, I had to do catch-up courses and everything. And, and I'd gone and done my, finished my BA when I was like 39, 40. So I was like, you know, stumbling along in the academic field, not my place of comfort. But I just knew I had to do that in order to, to continue in my field. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for picking up on that, Chris. That was, that was hard. It was tough. But what I found was actually that all my life experience was rich and uh, fertile ground for what I really wanted to do, which was to to understand families and how what goes on for kids with families. And if I was going to help kids, I had to help families, you know. And then just realizing, wow, the training I'm getting doesn't actually fit with what I think needs to happen, which is that Parents need to understand what's going on in their little children, and the kids are telling me in their play, but the parents aren't really understanding it because they're not even here. So it's like, how do I bring the parents in to to play again with their children? Because parents don't have time to play with their kids. You know, most part, they're you know, some parents are are great at at, at playing, but mostly they're you know trying to get the food on the table and you know get to work on time and uh, and make sure there's clothes and all that stuff. So yeah. I brought parents in to play with their kids, and I essentially helped them back into the world of creativity and imagination, which is where kids live, and it's where they it's where they express themselves, it's where they learn through their play, it's where they explore who they are, it's where they create who they are through play. So that was so rich. And then, you know, how do I help the kids to come in, sit 
with the parents and talk about the fact that somebody has been sexually abused in the family or somebody has died violently or, you know, the family is separating or the child has a severe learning disability and school is hell or, you know, kids are going to have to talk about that at some point. It's great for them to play and they will, you know, find their healing in the, in the play and they'll find peace and comfort and, and, you know, feel good about themselves through the play. But then they have to go out in the outer world. So it's like, how do you bring those two worlds together? So that's what I ended up, not, wasn't planning on it, but I ended up, the bulk of my career was, you know, how, how to integrate this stuff and then how to articulate it and then how to share what I was learning. And, uh, and you know, somewhere along the way, my, my beautiful nephew, Pete, so my brother Peter's son, <laughs> he helped me to put PowerPoints together and then I started presenting. And then, you know, then I would say, well, Pete, you know, I got another invitation to present. I need to, you know, add some stuff to the PowerPoint. So, and he he would say, well, yeah, okay, Marianne, well, you know, I think you know how to do it now. So just let me know if you run into trouble. And it's like, oh my God, this technology. <laughs> and he was right. I'd sat in the passenger seat while he was doing the PowerPoints, but I actually knew how to drive the car. So I started making PowerPoints myself and editing all the own, my own video footage of the work that I was doing with parents and kids, you know. And and then I interviewed the parents and they got to teach the, the students, you know. So, you know, what was their their experience of all of this? So, yeah, that was um that was where my career brought me and it was uh it was pretty thrilling actually. Wow. Seriously, that is really wow. And so when when you were figuring this out along the way and you were documenting the things that you were working with and are you presenting these to colleagues and suggesting this is a better way to provide therapy that we need to include the parents working with the children was it an uphill battle and you mentioned a private practice as well too just how did that all kind of look as the years went by that whole experience mm -hmm. yeah well uh, um, I always did some work in a government-funded program um, and for, for most of those years, it was the PACE program, which provides a program for children and outreach to parents and parent education and, uh, and play therapy. So I worked many years in that program. And then I, and then I supervised the people who worked in that program. And then I worked for Greater Vancouver Mental Health in a, in a mental health setting, working with parents and children. But I slowly started my own private practice. So I did private practice on the side. And then eventually I left those uh, structured settings and did private practice. And then a lot of other play therapists wanted super, needed supervision. I mean, in our, in our field, you, you, know, you need a certain amount of supervision every year to keep your accreditation. So I was providing supervision. I was realizing, yeah, people really want this and they need this. A lot of people... Not a lot of the counselors were working in schools and, you know, had no contact with the families. Well, that's crazy. You know, if the child's acting out at school and having a lot of trouble. You know, the family's got to somehow be involved. You know, that's the. So, yeah, the need for it was there. I never would say this is a better way to work, but I'd say this is an alternate way to work. And people wanted to hear about it. So then, you know, we, ha we have ongoing training in our work. So, my organization, accreditation organization, the BC Play Therapy Association, um, you know, I was on the board for a while. I did, ran the newsletter for a while um, and, you know, then did workshops and then we'd have yearly 
conferences, and I worked with them. BCACC, which is a registration for clinical counselors, is where I, I, I had my coverage, and a Canadian Association for Play Therapy. And, and I taught in the United States, um, a, uh, Association for Play Therapy, which is an American association. They had huge conferences, like 1,000 people yearly, so I started presenting workshops there. And then, you know, went to Hawaii to teach, uh, went to Australia to teach, yeah, so it just it just had its own natural life, actually. I never actually advertised my practice. I was very lucky. You know, just through word of mouth, I got enough clients. And then through the, you know, the training, the, the accreditation service, uh, uh, system, you know, I got invitations to teach. You mentioned earlier being able to integrate imagination and creativity into the parents through being able to play with their kids. And I think that that's so important that uh, I know that when I'm lacking imagination and creativity in my life, that my quality of life goes downhill. Mm. And that uh, certainly we're all under stresses and constraints to pay the bills and to trudge through life. And I don't have any kids. And I can imagine it's much, much harder when you have to expend that much more energy with children and the the ability to be imaginative and to be creative definitely yeah. takes a back seat. But I think that that sounds like a really beautiful thing to be able to encourage the parents to tap into those aspects of themselves. Absolutely. I mean, you know, basically, our bodies do have the physical capacity to heal, you know, amazingly, right? You cut yourself, you can watch that healing happening. We have that innately in our bodies. But in our psyches, we have the ability to heal. And a huge part of that is through creativity and imagination. That is like a the immune system of the of the of the psyche, you know. It's what can help us through a, any traumas, any terrible things that have happened is that we can find our way to healing through creativity and music and dance and art and 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 that you know the kids so inspired me and i i got so much more back in touch with my creativity through working with children and and that opened up a whole other avenue for me a, a really good friend who had been doing training with me we both wanted you know to get art therapy training but we didn't have the time or money to do it. So we just started doing art together. So on a monthly basis, we just paint three pictures, put them down on the floor, get a cup of tea, and then we go, well, whoa, what are these paintings about? You know, we'd done a little bit of reading, but actually what we found was that doing our own art, we began to see what was coming up in our art was the story of what was going on in our inter internal world. And through that, we became just more and more excited about creativity and so we started singing together and going to choirs together and um and then going to anything that was creative we started looking around what what you know we did belly dancing <laughs> together and then eventually we started uh, we found women friends which was a creativity camp for women which amazing experience for years would be uh, twice a year and then and that that friend Jenny dear dear friend Jenny and I um started um, Winter's Tales which was a storytelling for women in the winter time when in the dark of winter, we'd get together and we would just tell stories together. And that became storytelling plus doing creative activities, arts, and uh, and then performing, just having, you know, a stage at in the nighttime to, you know, people bring their poetry and their songs, dances and storytelling, you know, we and then we, we started 
collecting masks and costumes and wigs and uh, and accessories. And then we just start telling, putting on costumes and telling stories from the characters that that we were discovering, you know. And just this extraordinary explosion of creativity among women in a setting where it's just safety because we're just playing together like kids, you know, <laughs> and the trust level was there. So, you know, it was just remarkable to see, you know, the uh, the uh, the innate creativity in people when the setting is safe for it. And, you know, people would say, look, you know, this is better than than therapy, you know, <laughs> and we've done that. We've done that for 22 years now, 20, going on 23 years now. Um, and now it's twice a year and uh, I've lost that beautiful friend, Jenny. So I'm doing that with the help of the community because there's a lot of women who are very invested in continuing to do that. But I would credit the children's creativity with inspiring us to, to go that road. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I guess being around the kids as much as you were, that uh, it's it's tough to like not have that rub off on you being around <laughs> kids' uh, playful imagination and creativity. Nice. So back to Pender Island here, and let's talk about this beautiful house that you have up on Oak Bluffs. Mm. How did that come into existence? And mm. if you could describe it a little bit for people listening. Okay, well, yeah, first of all, you know, getting the career made it possible to think about getting land. And then my friends and I looked at this property together, decided we would buy it. And we were thinking, well, we'd put a yurt on it maybe or a, a trailer or something because none of us had any money to do anything else. But we ended up buying a um, Sunbury Cedar kit for a shed and... um it was like under $2,000, and I think it was 12 by 16, and it came with one page, two-sided instructions, nails and uh, wood and uh, shingles, and we put it together, <laughs> and, uh, and then we, it, when it was half done, I think we were you know, sleeping in it one night, and we think, yeah, it's so nice to be able to lie here and, and look at the trees, so we decided to put in a, sk a skylight, so we put in a skylight, and, and we put in windows, which didn't come with it, and... Uh, we shared that cabin for um, a couple of years, and then um, and then I had the amazing good fortune to um, find uh, my partner John Allen came into my life, and we've been together thirty years now, a hugely rich part of my life. Um, so then it were four of us in a cabin. That's too much, you know. And so John and we would take turns being there, the two couples. And then John and I thought, well, you know. We really want to be here more often, um, but I couldn't afford to build a house, you know. And he said, well, let's just build something in the meantime. And I, I thought that was not practical, but, and I'm a practical person, but it was desirable. So we decided we would buy some, that we would build something that would be somewhere between this 12 by 16 cabin and the ultimate house that we would build that would, you know, be for living full time. Well, what we built was a 250-square-foot cabin that we designed ourselves. We knew everything we wanted. We knew the layout of it. But we, again, had amazing good fortune because Paul Hampson took a look at our drawings and our list of 18 things that we wanted, and he did go, no problem, no problem, no problem to each thing on that list. And he built it up on the ridge. It's sitting on rock. It is off the grid. Um, we built it with one solar panel and used it with one solar panel until 
COVID, which COVID meant Zoom, and Zoom meant needing more power. So we now have two solar panels. We collect rainwater. We have uh, 45-gallon drums, 18 of them all strung together, and that gives us water, running water for everything except drinking. Uh, we bring in drinking water, but we also fill 7,000 gallons of cisterns for watering the garden from the rain that comes off our roof. We just use a hose, and it's all gravity-fed down to the uh, tanks by the garden. Um, we have a composting outhouse, and then um, in latter years, we have what we call a pissoir, which is like a fancy commode that is on the outside of the cabin because you don't have to go down to the outhouse every single time. Uh, we have coolers. One one cooler is run um, off solar. Amazingly, you know, the solar will charge it, it with a full moon. It's amazing. Even a gray day like this, it's charging. Uh, and we have limited needs for electricity. We we just don't use electricity that much. We bring, you know, a lot of the recycling that needs a lot of washing and, and our clothing uh, to the city. And I am here on Pender three quarters of my time. And uh, John is maybe two thirds of the time. So, you know, when we go to Victoria, it's no longer Vancouver. We go to Victoria, we've got grandkids there. And uh, so there we do the things that we can't do. In, in the limits of this cabin, but really it has everything we want except a washer dryer. It, it, we don't even have a hot water tank. We, we just boil water on the wood stove or on the propane stove. And we have a built-in dishwasher, which is John. He does all the dishes. And we have a 6,000 square foot garden and we grow a lot of our own food. And we, we have this amazing view of the ocean and we see the eagles are nesting nearby. In the old days, we used to hear the orca because we're in the sanctuary zone and it was just the most beautiful thing was hearing them, you know, blowing from down below. Um, now we don't even hear the whale watching boats because that's what the next thing was. We'd hear the whale watching. Now they don't even come because the orca don't come along that, that coast very much anymore. But it's still um, just an extraordinarily um, special place to live. And it's funny because most people come and see it and they go, oh, this is great. This is the way I want to live, you know. Well, you know, there could be ways that we could live with less convenience. And I think that's the thing I've learned from living this way is that we get so addicted to convenience and and there's a downside to convenience. And there are ways you can live with um, less of the comforts that we are so used to that can still be deeply satisfying. And this environment that we're in is so good for it because it never gets too cold. I mean, in the winter, you know, we just have coolers and we keep all our, our stuff in coolers. We don't need a fridge. It's all fine out there just outside the door, you know. And uh, and a little wood stove gets us all the heat we need. And then when the sun comes out in the winter, it's like, oh, my God, it gets too hot, you know. So passive solar is a very useful thing. Yeah, so um, I have had that. Great good fortune of of, uh, of having that as my home. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And I had the opportunity to go to your home in the summertime, and oh, I, it's just it's just incredible. And it's 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 a very small and clearly modest place as you're describing it, with the lack of modern conveniences for the most part. But wow, there's an incredible energy that exists in and around your home. It's really, really something. And it actually has made me quite inspired to uh, look towards the future and make some changes because I really hear what you're saying about we get addicted to conveniences and there's a lot of beauty that can be found on the other side of that. And I'm I'm really noticing that more. The last power outage we had, I was so 
into having the candlelight and mm-hmm. the lack of Wi-Fi buzzing around and all the lights being out. And I think what I'm going to try to do is have a once a week evening where we just turn all the power off and really just embrace that experience. Cause my thoughts are different when that's happening. My actions are clearly different and then it just leads to a whole different experience. And I think that, uh, that's something that I want to try to do to integrate into um, a little bit more of a less uh, consumptive lifestyle. And that's part of the reason why you're doing this as well, too, is because you're very passionate about climate change issues and the environment. And you actually just made a amazing documentary that I got to see at the community hall very recently that you made. And perhaps you could talk about the documentary a little bit and your passion about wanting to make the world a better place. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good example you just gave, Chris, about um, if you just turn off the lights. I mean, yeah, power outages are a a drag on Pender because of the lifestyle. You know, when there's a power outage on Pender, we just turn our lights on and, you know, put our music on and dance because (laughs) we got the power, you know. (laughs) But yeah, you know, like what it does is it makes you live closer to, you know, just the rhythm of a day. So when the, when the sun goes down at our place, you know, we light a candle and do yoga. You know, if we were in the city, we'd flip the lights on, you know, but um, because we don't, you know, we, we, we use electricity uh, when we need it, but we only use it if we need it. And you don't need it a lot of the time. So, you know, this, okay, well, what do you do when it gets dark? Well, light a candle, put some music on, um, do yoga, you know. But so, yeah, I, I think really um, having been a back-to-the-lander, in my 20s, just made me aware of um, subsistence and sustainable living and being able to be independent of all the things that we rely on in our modern world, or some of them, not all of them, obviously. You had to have a car, you know, a truck, really. But yeah, so I think that sort of ingrained in me, you know, well, you know, we can do with less, and actually less is more. And, you know, cre- you know, making your own food is so satisfying, growing your own food, so satisfying. And so recognizing that um, that was a lifestyle that um, gave me a lot. And so, and then, you know, if you go from a 12 by 16 cabin to a 250 square foot cabin, it, it felt like the 250 square feet was luxury, you know, <laughs> so so it feels still like luxury. Um, and, and and so, yeah, I think I've always been aware, um, and because we were growing in, on our farm, we were growing organically. Wow, you know, we're getting poisons in this food that we eat. You know, what do we want for our world? And, uh, you know, I mean, now, from the 60s to 2023, we are in a planetary crisis that is beyond anything I ever could have imagined when I was living on that farm. Um, but a lot of what I learned there, I think, is what we still need to um, call into our lives. You know, how do we live um, peacefully with the land? How do we live, you know, with the seasons? How do we live with the minimal impact um, on our environment? I mean, this is the question of our time. And, uh, yeah, I just feel like if I just do my part, um, that's the best way I can uh, contribute is just keep on figuring out how to, how to live a lifestyle, um, uh, with the minimal 
impact and the most um, at peace with uh, Mother Nature, being kind to Mother Nature. Yeah, so um, so our lifestyle does that, and um, and I think the creativity that was inspired by the children has, and then became you know how do I teach people about how to be with children in a creative way, and then the creativity that got really fired in me as a result of that. So, um, you know, going from writing poetry, I started to write a spoken word, and then, you know, we've done some podcasts on Pender Island, and then it was like, well, there's a, there's a, a once a year, um, Tarmigan puts on a, a filmmaking um, workshop, you know, so I did that, and that really got me fired up, and the kids are all doing, you know, animation and stuff like that, so... And there I am trying to figure out, God, iMovie, I don't understand iMovie. But actually having learned PowerPoint helped me to learn a bit more about um, about iMovie. So step by step by step, and I've now made five films with uh, with uh, iMovie. And uh, this latest one is a to-do list for a climate crisis. It's 25 minutes long. It's practically a feature film. <laughs> but it came out of realizing how much good stuff is happening on Pender and just feeling so aware that, you know, when we do stuff in community, it just uh, helps you not feel alone with this enormous challenge of the climate crisis. Of course, none of us is going to solve the climate crisis, but doing it together doing, and, and, and knowing what other people are doing and feeling excited by what other people are doing and the creativity of, of people's alternatives for how do you live well, you know, just really fired me up. And so, yeah, I started interviewing people and. Uh, had the concept that it was going to be a list. So everybody had 30 seconds. And I'm telling you, some of those people could be a two-hour film. There's so many things they could say and show. And I wanted to have children in it because really, for me, it's all about the children. You know, I mean, we're going to be gone from this planet and they're going to have this planet. And how are they going to live on this planet? I feel, I feel a lot of concern about that. I really do. Hmm. So I wanted the kids in there. And the kids, of course, are the best part of the film. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm very happy with the film. And I'm thinking, yeah, I want to keep making films. Yeah. Well, it was really impactful. And it was, it was great because everybody introduced themselves by name and age. So it was really interesting to get to see the, uh, the broad ranges of age. Which, which I thought was a nice touch. At first, it seemed kind of odd, but um, as as everybody was giving their different ages, I was like, "Oh, this is great, right?" <laughs> like, and then everybody had you know, like a unique perspective on what they could do to improve the planet, and it's a very uplifting uh, movie. And I'll put a link in the description for it, so if people want to check it out, they can just one click and go onto YouTube and watch it. Because awesome. uh, yeah, I actually walked out of that that uh, experience at the community hall, very feeling very inspired. I thought you did a really great job with it. Well, we have an amazing community here on Stays on Pender Island. We really do. So I feel like, wow, I, I got to show that. Yeah, which is great. And it's amazing the film is getting around. Somebody told me the other day, who, somebody who lives on Pender said, I got two emails with a link to your film from one from Salt Spring Island and one from Victoria, and she lives on Pender. So, wow, wow, I have no idea about how do you distribute a film, but somehow it's happening. So I'm very happy about that. Yeah, no, that's that's great for sure. Just being aware of the time, seems like you're going to have to go to the ferry pretty quick here. So I think that we're going to 
reach the end here very shortly. But before we do, I just want to ask, is there anything that uh, we haven't talked about today that uh, you want to mention to the people at Pender or other people who are listening to this about uh, you and your wonderful life that you've had? Well, you know, what I want to say, Chris, is how much I appreciate you doing this. Stories are so important to us. It's Human beings tell stories. We tell stories, you know. It's so fundamental to the animal that we are. And you are doing this terrific job of getting the stories of this island um, out and about on air for people to hear. And I'm I'm just, uh, I love every podcast that I've listened to. And I'm going to keep tuning into you. I guess I'm even going to hear this one. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I think um, what you're doing is very valuable and I really appreciate it. And I thank you. I appreciate those words for sure. And uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's really, it's a pleasure to do, right? Like this experience we're having right now that people will be listening to is uh, lovely. But I mean, having this opportunity to share a Friday morning drinking some tea and having this experience with somebody is really special. It's really special. Mm. And uh, I, I really value every one of these I get to do. And none of them turn out the way I think that they're going to, which is <laughs> the the great gift of it. And it's amazing. So thank you for sharing your time and your, your stories and your vulnerability and the work that you've done in your life and coming in and talking about these things. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Chris. Oh boy, wasn't that great. I am very thankful that Marianne decided to do that interview. That was a lot of fun to do. And as we mentioned before, if you're interested in watching the latest film that Marianne did, I did put a link in the show notes for that. So please go check that out. It's really worth watching. I'd like to say thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music for this podcast. And of course, thank you for listening. Until next time.